this is the seventh podcast of Basic Soft Software Engineering course, and in this lecture podcast, Terokoyo from Nokia is going to tell us about software configuration management. Unfortunately, the first part of this lecture wasn't recorded, but here is the second part of the lecture. Okay, <clears throat> let's continue. Um, <clears throat> as promised, the second part will be more practical things, well, things that I've come across in the last 10 years. And as said, the kind of first part might have been boring theory, but question. Yeah. Before we go on, uh, I wasn't sure I followed you during the last part. Mm-hmm. What's the difference between configuration set and the long transaction? Okay. I, I, that both of those had uh, the own sandbox work on. Um, okay, a question about the difference of was long transaction and sorry, uh, composition. Change set. Oh, sorry, change set. Okay, um, the kind of <clears throat> because I mean this is an idealized model we are looking at. Um, and nowadays, well, it's hard because the tools, basically, the good tools, implement the whole set without questions. Um, the change set idea <clears throat> in itself is it's pretty simple. Well, all of them are pretty simple. But the idea is that instead of having kind of changes to an individual file, <laughs> like this, the uh, idea goes the other way around, so that you have a change that can impact multiple files at once. And this kind of, it, it gives a natural extension to the, to the idea of a, a requirement or error fix or whatever. So you can automatically associate one requirement with one change. It simplifies things a lot, and actually, it's partially okay. It partially helps and hinders the composition, what com- the composition model thinking wants to do. But usually, um, usually, when we're thinking change set in the sense, um, okay, baselines are sorry. The long transaction, mm-hmm. you just get the sandbox of your own, mm-hmm. and then you do your change set and submit it, check it in. Okay. Um, so I'll just repeat it for the microphone. The question was whether in the long transaction you basically just have your own work area, do a change set and submit it. Um, Yes, you basically have the basic point right, uh, but the idea with the long transaction model, because it's okay. The difference in thinking is the long transaction model is all about teamwork. Uh, it's not. I mean, it does directly affect the individual, but it's the idea of having 
having the repository and then having multiple funny little stick figures at the end. And I'm not going to try and try and draw sandboxes, which I personally like sandboxes, but anyway, everybody around here has <clears throat> their own little environment in which they do weird things with a computer. The idea in the long transaction model is that you isolate the developer in a sense. Everybody isn't going directly into the repository. So the check-in, check-out model doesn't really, I mean, doesn't have the concept of a workspace. The long transaction gives you the concept of a workspace. So it extends because the basic idea, the repository is a controlled area. The long transaction extends the controlled area into the, well, developer's machine, in a sense. And, well, when you start layering these models, you get the idea, because long transaction doesn't really say whether you have to operate with a change set or not. You could have long transaction with the granularity of a single file, that, so that you'd always just edit one file. It would be stupid and slow, but <laughs> there's nothing stopping. So I hope that answered the question. Good. Um, okay. Then onwards. <clears throat> now, SCM in practice. Um, I've been around for about 10 years with this topic. And what I've learned, and what I've said already a couple of times, the only case when you don't need to consider about configuration management, if you're working yourself, for yourself, alone, and no one else will ever look at what you're doing, um, it's pretty boring in the long run. And the thing is, Configuration management, I mean, it started in the early 50s, late 40s. Theoretically, we could almost trace configuration management in a sense to the time when rifle barrels started being machine manufactured. That's 1870 about. And <clears throat> the point with that story is that the first time, I mean, well, the early 18th, 19th century, they didn't have the possibility of machine manufacturing almost anything. Well, machines were pretty crude and simple. So at the point when, when they actually could start mass manufacturing something, they came to the point that um, because it's physical products, you have to fit pieces into other pieces. So in order to fit the pieces together, you need to have the pieces in a certain tolerance. Um, in modern day terms, you can't fit an M7 screw into an M5 hole. It's two millimeters too wide. Well, they ran into the same problem back in the 19th century. Um, if the rifle tube is too big, you can't fit it simple 
So the solution was essentially that they started measuring every rifle tube that comes out and categorizing them. And this basically resulted in each rifle being a single configuration. That's fine. So basically they had to have some control over what they were doing. Before that time it was a complete kind of artisan craft. There were craft, craftsmen who made the rifles and each one was kind of made from start to finish by the same, same guy. Doesn't really matter what size hole you had. It's the one guy who did it. Um, and from that day we've come quite far. Both in actually, well, real material products and software products. <clears throat> it's really heavily automated today. Because, well, there's one good example. I think I have the link in there. Um, it's to a NASA configuration management guidebook. And I think it's dated 1985 or 1980. I, I can't remember exactly. But if you have Google, just write NASA CM guidebook. And it will probably pop up as the first one. It's an HTML document and okay, it's probably the best description of configuration management in 20 pages that I've seen. Um, basically because those guys thought of it, thought up the whole thing first time. But the point is that <clears throat> it all has appendixes and pictures of these actual change management sheets. It's a paper sheet. <laughs> with the description of what you're wanting to change, why, and then there's separate places for all the stuff that you need to fill in. Um, it's just a kind of a nice reminder that it's less than 30 years and people were filling in these pieces of paper. And when you start dating it, it's about the same time as the space shuttles made their flights first time. So it's quite an achievement on a piece of paper in a sense. <clears throat> Nowadays, almost every hobby project simply just sets up a track or a bugzilla project for themselves. Way much simpler. No paper running around. And you get all the changes into your email or RSS feeds if you want to. Um, so it's just extremely automated. Um, I personally well, I'm luckily not on most lists, but just for products, I think I get 10 emails a day on their, I mean, a product level integration status emails on what's happening. And I'm not in the actual, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm not directly related to any product. I'm platform. So that's kind of the way it is. And then there's the nice point that we do have feeds for anything you want to, well, access. If I, for some strange reason, got interested in a certain component that we, some team somewhere is building, I could basically just add the feed into my feed reader and start wondering on all of their build results on what's happening. 
not really productive for what I should be doing at work, but I could do it. And the thing is that while for the most part I probably have been talking tools and processes, the real key and essence in configuration management is the people. Uh, it's all about the people. <clears throat> it's the people who use the tools, it's the people who do the coding. Um, okay, we're hoping to get out of the point where people do the testing, but some levels of testing will be done by humans, no matter what. <clears throat> At least the acceptance test, I mean, the kind of if you think the three layers again, the product level testing will be done by humans, no matter what. Simply for the fact that it's, well, you humans that are mostly using the products in the end. Um, and the funny point is that configuration management, I mean, I can easily talk 12 lectures, two hours a piece on configuration management. I probably can do 20 and still I'd be left with a feeling that I could do a couple of more. <clears throat> so it's, I mean, there's a huge lot of information collected from over a long time by researchers and from practice. Um, yet, for some weird reason, it's kind of overlooked a lot. For instance, kind of quick word with one of you on the break and kind of agreed on the point that software architecture, you need to have your decomposition on a fairly okay, good level if you want to do software. Yep, completely agree. And there's an excellent course on software architecture here at the university, strongly suggested to anybody. Um, and the funny part is that there's no configuration management course here. The closest one is in Lund in Sweden. And the next one is, um, I think, University of Irvine in Dallas still gives a configuration management course. I'm not absolutely sure. I haven't checked in the last two years. But that's about it. Uh, there might be a French university giving a course because they basically have one couple of the well, top researchers in France, but I'm not really sure about that idea, uh, that or either. Um, and still, like I said, and you can actually find <laughs> quite known talkers and researchers on the internet saying the same, I rarely come across a project that doesn't have a level of configuration management in place. Um, I actually have come across in my last 10 years of wandering about in companies only one place. I've, well, I didn't actually see that place myself because it was bought out by another company um, that did have some level of configuration management in place, but the company that got bought didn't. They had managed, and they were a software product company selling software. They didn't even have version control in place. 
um, they did all development on an NT shared drive. <clears throat> um, that was kind of scary to find out, but I mean, one in 10 years, okay, I'll, I can live with that. <laughs> so, and actually for that company, there was also a not so funny story involved because kind of the configuration management practices were, well, non-existent. And it's actually the only place because there's this kind of usual way of scaring people saying that, okay, what if you get run over by a car, who will, I mean, who can take over your job type of thing. Well, that company, then one of their lead developers actually, he didn't get run over by a car, but he had a car accident in which he was killed. Um, it basically set the company six months back in product development. Uh, just because nobody had any clue what the guy had been doing. Um, no version control system to check what he had been doing actually. Just, just this NT drive. And then the next two guys, I mean, who basically sat in the same, it wasn't the same room, but the next offices, and sat with him in, on coffee and so on. They started wondering what the heck has this guy been doing because he's been doing a lot of our product development took them basically six months to find out everything that he had done and get back on track with what should be do, done. That kind of sucked big time for them. I mean, not only did they lose a colleague, but they did six months of <laughs> extra shifts just to, just to get catch up with things. Um, they weren't really happy about it on any level. So, kind of I've learned in 10 years that configuration management is a bit like the plumbing in your house. Uh, I don't want to know anything about the plumbing in my house. It just needs to work. Um, the day when the plumbing in your house doesn't work, you basically have shit all over the place. So, you want it to work. Configuration management is essentially like that. You want it to work, you don't want to know what it does, and when it breaks, it shit all over the place. It basically stops work. The day when your version control or change management system goes down, you can just tell everybody to go home. It's as simple as that. And Kind of, this is also one thing I've been saying over and over, if you noticed. Um, it's almost completely about the people. It's where you're working, who you're working with, who's the customer, who's going to use your software, um, who's going to use stuff that comes with your software, that's associated with your software. It's the people. And if you look and listen really closely to what I've been saying, it's always, I mean, it, it's the people always that are the thing, but the connections, uh, the dependencies, it's always somehow through 
the technical aspects, the tools, for instance, when you go about making a change, you're probably changing someone else's code. So, I mean, you do the stuff on the code, but there's a human somehow associated with it. When you do a change for a requirement, there's always somebody who wanted the requirement, so you have the dependency through the requirement, or that person actually depends on you for implementing the requirement. Um, so on an individual level, you have this idea that it's always the people who are wondering about there. Now again, if you take the three layers that I mentioned in the beginning, you get the exact same picture. Um, let's say for the company level, there's, I mean, outsourcing is, that's a standard way of working nowadays. So that's just basically dependencies through the technical matter, what the outsourcing company will provide a piece of software. It's a dependency through that piece of software on the company level. And the difference on this level is that usually these are formal dependencies in the sense that they are explicit legal agreements on what needs to be delivered, what gets done and by whom and by when. And, and ugly stuff if you're not a lawyer. If you're a lawyer, you simply love the area because software lawyers are darn expensive. And software lawyers with a good understanding of, well, good understanding of software and and this kind of corporate level stuff, almost non-existent. So if you really want to do a lot of work, long hours, but get paid like hell, start reading law on the side. And well, on my list, I have a couple of things. They're last. What are you actually producing? Big question when you're doing something, but from the configuration management point of view, yeah, produce whatever you like. It's the same stuff underneath. The same plumbing that you'll need on your project anyway. Um, friend, the pro well, he's not a professor anymore. I can't remember what his title is, but anyway, uh, teaches at the University of London, the configuration management course, Lars Bendix. Um, his example of kind of what he uses to open up configuration management is jam jars. Um, when he was a postgraduate student, he actually visited, I can't remember, it was in northern Italy, not Milan, but somewhere over there, university in northern Italy. I should really ask him what it was. But anyway, he shared a dorm room with an Italian guy who was, he, he wasn't in software engineering. So he was kind of always asking, okay, this guy from Denmark, Lars is Danish, comes over to Italy and says he's studying software engineering. So this guy always asks, kind of, what, what do you study? What do you do over there? And last tries to explain configuration management, the evolution of managing the evolution of products over the whole life cycle. Yeah, yeah. 
yeah, whatever that is. And then it turns out this Italian guy, <coughs> his family was really good in making jam. And he was actually because, I mean, his mother had been really good at it. They had fa family recipes, collection of them. And I was thinking of going into business, making jam. It, I mean, the initial batches went fine, but then he got, started getting this kind of feedback. Yeah, this was great. How about if, if you just make it a, a bit more sweet or a bit less this or kind of change it or could you do, do this type of thing? Um, so he got, I mean, phone calls, pieces of paper, whatever. And this was basically the point at which Lars could simply, I mean, <laughs> this was his home ground, this configuration management. So he simply pointed out that, okay, if you just put a small sticker on every jar that says when you did it and what it is, or even better, put a nondescript number that, that doesn't mean anything really on the jar. And when you get kind of feedback, ask them, okay, can you look just under the etiquette? There's the small number, what's it say? That's configuration management for jam jars. So that's kind of that. That's how his roommate got it. After that, it was, yeah, the guy who does configuration management for jam jars, as Lars is known. So kind of doesn't really matter what you're doing. The principles are the same underneath. And the last bullet, I guess, that's in there because that's me currently. I'm at Nokia in the Series 60 platform as a configuration management specialist. My area is deployment of tools and processes. <clears throat> so I'm kind of the unlucky guy who has to go around telling people to change their tools. Um, it doesn't sound too bad, really. can't remember what my next slide is, but... Uh, just continue with the story and leave that there. But basically, um, we have this, I mean, in certain places and certain points, we have this funny situation where people have actually built their own tools over time. And I mean, because, hey, come on, we are a huge company. We just named the country and we probably have a sales representative at least there. Um, now we have this kind of situation where we all over the planet have people who have done nice little tools for themselves for doing a specific task. Um, build tools is a good example. People, I mean, the basic stuff underneath is the same, that, but people have done little scripts, small changes in there. And we're trying to unify that back into just one again. And the funny example it was just September <clears throat> and starting this unified build framework rollout. I go into one of our offices, get the build managers in the room, scheduled a meeting before naturally. Um, started the discussion, like gave a short presentation that this is kind of the build framework we should be looking at and using and kind of blank stares for a while and and I said, okay, so what do you think? 
first question was, okay, <clears throat> we've been building our own toolset for the past four years, so we're supposed to dump it now. Yes. Um, that's kind of the problem I face because um, I guess none of our workers are Zen Buddhist monks who would just simply say, hmm, my four years of work are just an illusion of reality. I'll just drop it. <clears throat> what did you have over there? Hmm, I'll try this for a while. No. Um, I guess if you think, think about it in this context, I come here and say, well, the last four years of your studies, we're just going to zero all your study points for that. Is that okay? Um, no. <laughs> Except in the case if you've been drinking for the past four years really heavily and don't have any study points. But <laughs> that's kind of the worst situations I get into. So it's all about the people. I mean, okay, the guys at the office, they aren't really happy with everything yet, but at least they are now using on some level. Um, I'm hoping before summer comes, I'll get that office to work the toolset as everybody else currently does. Um, then there's the weird part that I also get the other end of the spectrum. Hmm. Our Boston office, um, it was really funny, I mean, we had a workshop on the same topic, invited, again, people from all over. Just two days, everybody sits in a room and gets familiar with the product. Oh, well, it's an internal product, product anyway. So this guy from Boston walks in. I mean, he's your average kind of heavy-duty software engineer. He, he wasn't wearing an Iron Maiden t-shirt, but I can't remember what the band was on the t-shirt. Anyway, you can get the idea, this kind of guy who doesn't really, well, jeans, band t-shirt, long hair, uh, you wouldn't expect him to be kind of a high-level software professional, except if you know that he is. Um, walks in, um, listens, I'm, listens for something like 30 minutes when I go, okay, what's this stuff and what we're doing here and so on. Then he kind of gets this Ah, okay. So I got the emails earlier, I mean way earlier, a couple of months back and just deleted them because, I mean, come on, didn't have anything to do with me, but, but this sounds good. Let's do this. We'll just take this into use. I'm like, okay, so, so you're just happy at, happy at this and you'll take it into use. So, yeah, yeah, come on, come on. Okay. I mean, two weeks before I was at the other office where <laughs> the first question was, we've been doing this for four years with our own tools, what do you think? Uh, goes, I mean, just goes to show that in practice you find all sorts and you have to deal with everything. It just comes your way. And I'd still wish we had Zen Buddhist monks for all our workers. But we don't. <clears throat> so basically, this slide says quite well, the basics you have to have in place nowadays, 
anything, if you're doing a product, you have to have this stuff in place. You need a good version control system, change handling, <clears throat> and change handling, again, think of all the three layers here again. You might skip the team layer if, if you are not doing something big, but when you're doing a bigger thing, you need everything in place and for all layers. Building automated from start to end. Um, actually building, I guess most of you know what make or, or ant are. If not, get familiar with ant. It's part of the Apache kind of project family. Um, it's a build system. Uh, uses XML syntax, really nice, really simple. Does a lot of weird and wonderful tricks for you if you know what, what to ask. <clears throat> and it can be used to automate almost everything you can think of. Um, testing also, that's kind of the weird place. Everybody is all always, I mean, in software engineering, you always want quality, quality, quality. And then when somebody says, okay, we need to do automated testing, uh, no, 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 we want quality. Yeah, so how are you going to get that if you don't do the testing properly? It's the poor software engineering who does the coding, who actually does the quality into the product. So you might as well help your poor software engineering engineer by having a good automated test tool. They'll be so much happier if they get the feedback in five minutes, then what's the worst time? We theoretically, if everything goes bad, we have a maximum six-week cycle from the engineer doing a mistake in getting the feedback. That's the worst case when everything goes bad. The best case is that the feedback comes in 15 minutes. And we really don't want the six weeks. We want to get that into the 15 minutes mark always. It's kind of, it's called continuous integration. And that's, that's what we would really want to have in place in Nokia everywhere. Um, it's kind of, I think Martin Fowler has a small article on continuous integration. The basic idea is it's just plain common sense. In 10 minutes from the point where the developer makes a check-in, he should have the feedback on whether his check-in was good, the product builds, and the automated test set has been run. Mm. Developers probably have a better memory than 10 minutes, but six weeks they'll remember nothing. So 10 minutes is a good target for anything. <clears throat> and the funny part is that everything you need is in open source. And in reality, we are basically ramping down our tool development quite a lot in favor of open source. I mean, come on, it's there and there's a huge number of developers already doing it. Yeah, we'll just use it. Naturally, if we make anything better, and then what we get, we'll give it back. But I suggest anybody doing this type of thing <clears throat> get familiar with the open source tools available. Takes a bit of 
well, changing your attitude from not invented here to, yeah, if it's good, it works. But once you get that attitude changed through, then everything's fine. And again, it's people, people, people. <laughs> so it's the people who do the coding. It's the people who actually are going to use your product. It's the people, well, like me, who provide the configuration management support for the other people. And then we have people who are actually tool specialists for the version control system we use, for instance, who can answer really weird questions, which do occasionally come up. It's all about the people. And I guess, I hope you now have a, a slightly better understanding of configuration management than two hours ago. But it's kind of, kind of what I've learned in the 10 years is that um, you first of start wondering what the heck this is. Uh, for about a year, you think you got it under control. And then, I mean, if you go deeper all the time, then for the next three years, you're wondering that, no, I didn't actually have it quite right. Then you get a period of kind of getting more and more of some areas. And I'm guessing I'm at the point where I should be starting to have an understanding of kind of the big picture. Um, and the big picture meaning the whole idea that I do have a sense of what it means on different layers or levels of the company. I have an understanding of what configuration management means for different roles, developers, testers, integrators, builders, whoever in the company. I also have a clue on, on how different types of projects need to apply these things. And I believe, I have no real knowledge, that I have a good grasp of what configuration management or the generic principles are. That's the funny part, because in 10 years I've just <laughs> gotten back to the four basic processes. That's what I think configuration management is. So, it's kind of strange. You start off with something and at some point you return to it back again but with a better understanding. And what I didn't really touch or even begin to touch was how to apply different parts of this in different contexts. So to work with the people, you need to have an understanding of both what you're going to apply and what the context is. And, and then you add the people in the mess and then and then you get something out, and that's the fun part. Because, well, software engineering isn't an exact science, you'll never know what you exactly get out. So you actually have to like the, the people to get the stuff out. But I think that's about it. I'm badly over time again, as I always am. <clears throat> Problem with with people who have done lecturing as a pro on a professional basis is that we always run over time. But I'm really happy that you, 
listened. I mean, nobody fell asleep, which is a positive thing. Um, if you have any questions, however strange or not, I didn't put my email address on there, which is a bad mistake. It's terapistakoja at nokia.com. Hope it's somewhere. If you get any weird questions or anything else, ask now or email later or whatever. Any questions? Go ahead. Actually, one question about the trace handling. Uh, how do you do, uh, for example, I take a scrum now, for example. Um, uh, you have a customer asking for something for the product. Uh, it's accepted, it's put in a uh, product backlog, then it should be come into the sprint backlog and it should be divided into tasks. But how, how do you get back from the task to the customer, the trace? How is it implemented in practice? Okay, practical question. <clears throat> Taking Scrum as an example, um, when you get a requirement into the product backlog, then the sprint backlog and into a task. Um, in practice, you want a tool. If you don't have a tool, let's say you're doing kind of basic Scrum. Well, you want a tool anyway. If you're doing the absolute basic Scrum where you only have the yellow sticky post-it notes, then your trace is essentially in the people, the people who know to which task it has been associated. Um, not the best way if somebody has a car accident. Uh, in practice, what we have is an open source tool called Track, T-R-A-C. Really nice, <clears throat> has a huge set of plugins available. Um, you enter the story into the backlog. Um, then, I mean, according to normal sprint rules, you add it at some point into a sprint backlog and you break it up into tasks. And the tool, I mean, it's web-based. I think it needs Apache. Might be that it's also standalone, but basic stuff, everything all out there. And it has perfect traceability back. It also provides a nice wiki and burn down charts and whatever you can think of. We're really happy with that. So the answer is use tools to get the, <laughs> to get the trail back. Okay, I think we don't have uh, time for more questions, so let's give a round of applause for our guest.